0: Chapter 35 of The Countess of Rudelstadt This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand Translated by Francis G. Shaw Chapter 35 The Countess Wanda Shaken by the emotion of such a recollection, resumed her recital after some minutes' silence. We passed several days in the cavern, during which strength and health returned to my son with astonishing rapidity. Marcus, surprised to find in him no organic lesion, no deep-seated alteration in the functions of life, was nevertheless frightened at his savage silence, and his apparent or real indifference to our transports and the strangeness of his situation. Albert had completely lost his memory. Buried in a gloomy reverie, he vainly made secret efforts to understand what was passing around him. As to myself, who knew very well that grief was the only cause of his illness and of the catastrophe which had succeeded it, I was not so impatient as Marcus to see him recover the poignant recollections of his love. Marcus himself confessed that this entire extinction of the past in his mind could alone explain the rapid return of his physical strength. His body was reanimated at the expense of his mind, as quickly as it had been broken under the sorrowful efforts of his thought. He lives... "'and he will live assuredly,' said Marcus to me. "'But is his reason forever obscured?' "'Let us remove him from this tomb as soon as possible,' replied I. "'The air, the sun, and motion will doubtless awaken him from this slumber of the soul. "'Let us remove him above all from this false and impossible life, "'which has killed him,' returned Marcus.' Let us withdraw him from this family and this world which thwart all his instincts. Let us conduct him to the side of those sympathizing souls and whose contact his own will recover its clearness and vigor. Could I hesitate? While wandering with precaution at the decline of day in the environs of the Schreckenstein, where I pretended to ask charity of the few passers-by, I had learnt that Count Christian had fallen into a kind of childhood. He would not have understood the restoration of his son, and the spectacle of that anticipated death, and Albert understood it in his turn, would have completed the work of crushing him. Was it necessary, then, to restore and abandon him to the misdirected cares of that old aunt, of that ignorant chaplain, and of that stupid uncle, who had caused him to live so poorly and to die so sadly? Ah, let us fly with him, said I at last to Marcus. Let him not have under his eyes the agony of his father and that frightful spectacle of Catholic idolatry with which the beds of the dying are surrounded. My heart is broken at thinking that the husband who did not comprehend me, but whose pure and simple virtues I have always revered, and whom I have respected since my abandonment, as religiously, as during my union with him, is about to leave the earth without the possibility of our exchanging a mutual forgiveness. But since it must be so, since my appearance in that of my son could only be indifferent or fatal to him, let us depart. Let us not restore to that tomb of Riesenberg him whom we have reconquered from death and to whom life still opens, as I hope, a sublime future. Ah, let us follow the first impulse which made us come here. Let us snatch Albert from the captivity of the false duties created by rank and riches. Those duties will always be crimes in his eyes." And if he persists in fulfilling them for the sake of pleasing relatives whom old age and death are ready to dispute with him, he will himself die in the attempt. He will die the first. I know what I suffered in that slavery of the thought, in that mortal and incessant contradiction between the life of the soul and positive life, between principles, instincts, and forced habits. I see clearly that he has passed by the same paths, that he has gathered their poisons. Let us save him then, and if he wishes to return hereafter, contrary to this decision which we are about to take, will he not be free to do so? If the existence of his father is prolonged and his own moral health permits, will it not always be time to come back and console Christians' last days by his presence and his love? With difficulty, replied Marcus. I see terrible obstacles in the future, if Albert should wish to return from his divorce with constituted society, with the world and his family. But why should Albert wish it? His family will perhaps be extinct before he has recovered his memory, and I know well what he will think, on the day when he again becomes himself, of that which will remain to be recovered from the world. Name, honors, and riches. May heaven grant that day may come. Our most important and most urgent task is to place him in a condition where his cure may be possible. We therefore left the grotto by night as soon as Albert could stand. At a small distance from the Schreckenstein, we placed him on a horse and thus reached the frontier which is quite near that spot, as you know, and where we found more easy and more rapid means of conveyance. The connection which our order maintains with the numerous associates of the Masonic order assures us, in the whole interior of Germany, the facility of traveling without being known and without being subjected to the investigations of the police. Bohemia was the only country dangerous to us, in consequence of the recent movements at Prague and the jealous surveillance of the Austrian power. And what became of Zdenko, asked the young countess to Rudolstadt. Zdenko almost ruined us by his obstinacy in preventing our departure, or at least that of Albert, from whom he did not wish to be separated and whom he did not wish to follow he persisted in thinking that Albert could not live out of the fatal and gloomy abode of the Shruggenstein. It is only there, said he, that my pot is tranquil. Everywhere else men torment him, prevent him from sleeping, compel him to deny his fathers of Mount Tabor, and to lead a life of shame and perjury which exasperates him. Leave him here with me. I will take good care of him, as I have often done. I will not trouble his meditations. When he wishes to remain silent, I will walk without any noise and will hold Cinnabar's muzzle whole hours in my hands, that he may not go and make him shudder by licking his. When he wishes to be cheerful, I will sing to him the songs he loves. I will compose new ones for him, which he will also love." For he loved all my compositions, and he alone understood them. Leave my potter bride with me, I tell you. I know better than you do what is proper for him, and when you wish to see him again, you will find him playing on his violin or planting beautiful branches of cypress, which I go and cut for him in the forest in order to ornament the tomb of his dearly loved mother. I will nourish him well, that will I, I know all the cabins in which they never refuse bread or milk or fruits to good old Zdenko. And for a long while, the poor peasants of the Burma have been accustomed to feed, without knowing it, their noble master, the rich Potebrad. Albert does not love the feasts in which they eat the flesh of animals. He prefers the life of innocence and simplicity. He does not need to see the sun. He prefers the rays of the moon through the woods. And when he wants society, I lead him to the glades, to the wild places where in camp at night are good friends the Zagari, those children of the Lord, who know neither laws nor riches. I listened attentively to Zdenko because his artless talk revealed to me the strange life which Albert had led with him in his frequent retreats to the Schreckenstein. "'Do not fear,' added he, "'that I shall ever disclose to his enemies the secret of his abode. "'They are such liars and such fools that they say now, "'Our child is dead, our friend is dead, our master is dead.' "'They could not believe that he was living, even if they saw him. "'Besides, was I not accustomed to say to them "'when they asked if I had seen Count Albert, "'Doubtless he is dead?' And as I laughed when I said this, they pretended that I was mad. But I spoke of death to laugh at them, because they believe or feign to believe in death. And when the people of the chateau wanted to follow me, had I not a thousand good tricks to mislead them. Oh, I know all the windings of the hare and the partridge. I know, like them, how to hide in a thicket, to disappear under the heath, to make a false track to leap, to clear a rivulet, to stop in a hiding place in order that my pursuers may pass me, and, like the meteor of the night, to make them lose themselves and sink to their great danger in the swamps and quagmires. They call Zdenko the innocent. The innocent is more crafty than all of them. There was only one maiden, a holy maiden, who could deceive the prudence of Zdenko She knew magic words to chain his anger. She had talismans to overcome all snares and all dangers. Her name was Consuelo. When Zdenko pronounced your name, Albert shuddered slightly and turned his head, but he immediately let it fall again upon his chest, and his memory was not awakened. I tried in vain to come to an agreement with this guardian, so devoted and so blind, by promising to bring Albert back to the Schreckenstein, on condition that he would first follow him to a place where Albert wished to go. I could not persuade him, and when at last, half by good words, half by force, we had compelled him to let my son leave the cavern, he followed us weeping, murmuring and singing in a lamentable voice, to beyond the mines of Kuttenberg. When he had reached a celebrated place, Rysyska had formerly gained one of his great victories over Sigismond. Zdenko quickly recognized the rocks which marked the frontier, for no one has explored all the paths of that country like him in his vagabond journeys. There he stopped and said, striking the ground with his foot, Never again will Zdenko leave the soil which covers the skeletons of his father's. It is not long since, exiled and banished by my protobrod, by having misunderstood and threatened the Holy Maiden whom he loves. I passed weeks and months in foreign countries. I thought I should become mad there. I returned a short time since to my dear forest in order to see Albert's sleep because a voice had sung to me in my slumbers that his anger was dispelled. Now that he no longer curses me, You steal him from me. If it be to conduct him to his consuelo, I consent. But as to quitting my country again, as to speaking the language of our enemies, as to extending my hand to them, as to leaving the Schreckenstein deserted and abandoned, I will never do it. That is beyond my strength, and besides, the voices of my sleep have forbidden me. Zdenko must live and die upon the ground of the slaves. "'He must live and die singing the glory of the slaves "'and their misfortunes in the tongue of his fathers. Adieu and depart. "'If Albert had not forbidden me to shed human blood, "'you would not take him from me thus. "'But he would curse me again if I should raise my hand on you, "'and I prefer not to see him more "'rather than to see him irritated against me. "'You hear me, O oh, my Poudrebron,' cried he, "'pressing against his lips the hands of my son, "'who looked at and listened to him without understanding him. "'I obey you, and I go. "'When you return, you will find your stove kindled, "'your books arranged, your bed of leaves renewed, "'and the tomb of your mother covered with palms always green. "'If it be in the season of flowers, there will be flowers upon her.' and upon the bones of our martyrs on the banks of the fountain. Good-bye, Cinnabar. And saying this, in a voice interrupted by tears, Sidanka rushed down the declivity of the rocks which sloped towards Bohemia, and disappeared with the rapidity of a deer at the first light of day. I will not relate to you, dear Consuelo, the anxieties of our expectation during the first weeks which Albert passed here with us. Concealed in this pavilion which you now inhabit, he returned by degrees to the mental life which we endeavored to reawaken in him, though with slowness and precaution. The first word which escaped from his lips after two months of absolute silence was called forth by a musical emotion. Marcus had comprehended that Albert's life was bound to his love for you, and he had resolved not to invoke the recollection of that love until he knew that you were worthy to inspire it and free to respond to it at some future day. He therefore obtained the most minute information respecting you, and in a short time he knew the smallest details of your character, the most trifling particulars of your past and present life. Thanks to the skillful organization of our order, to the connections established with all other secret societies, to a large number of neophytes and adepts whose province it is to examine with the most scrupulous attention those things and persons which interest us, nothing can escape our investigations. There are no secrets for us in the world. We know how to penetrate into the arcana of politics, as well as into the intrigues of courts. Your life without stain, your character without evasion, were not therefore very difficult to know and to judge. The Baron de Trank, as soon as he knew that the man by whom you were beloved, and whom you had never named to him, was no other than his friend Albert, spoke to us of you with enthusiasm. The Count de Saint-Germain, one of the most absent men in appearance, and the most clear-sighted in reality. That strange visionary, that superior mind, who seems to live only in the past, and whom nothing escapes in the present, soon furnished us with the most complete informations respecting you. They were such that I became at once tenderly attached to you, and looked upon you as my own daughter." When we were sufficiently informed to proceed with certainty, we caused skillful musicians to come under the window at which we are now seated. Albert was there where you are, leaning against that curtain and contemplating the sunset. Marcus held one of his hands and I the other in the midst of a symphony composed expressly for four instruments in which had been introduced various motives from the bohemian airs which Albert plays with so much soul and religious feeling, he was made to hear that canticle to the virgin with which you formerly charmed him. O Consuelo dimi ama. At this moment Albert, who had appeared somewhat agitated at hearing the chants of our old Bohemia, threw himself into my arms and burst into tears, crying, Oh, my mother! Oh, my mother! Marcus stopped the music. He was satisfied with the emotion produced. He did not wish to abuse it the first time. Albert had spoken. He had recognized me. He had recovered strength to love. Many days still passed before his mind was restored to its full liberty. Still, he had no attack of delirium. When he appeared fatigued by the exercise of his faculties, he fell into a gloomy silence, but insensibly his face assumed a less melancholy expression, and by degrees we combated this taciturn disposition with gentleness and precaution. At last we had the happiness to see disappear in him this need of intellectual repose, and there was no longer any suspension in the labor of his thought, but during the hours of a regular and peaceful sleep, almost like that of other men. Albert recovered the consciousness of his life, of his love for you and for me, of his charity and his enthusiasm for his fellow men and for virtue, of his faith and of the necessity that he should cause it to triumph. He continued to cherish you without bitterness, without mistrust, and without regretting all that he had suffered for you. But, in spite of the care he took to reassure us and to show us his courage and self-denial, we saw clearly that his passion had lost none of its intensity. He had only acquired more moral and physical strength to support it. We did not seek to combat it. Far from this. We united our efforts, Marcus and I, to give him hope, and we resolved to inform you of the existence of that husband for whom you religiously wore mourning, not on your garments but in your soul. But Albert, with a generous resignation and a just sense of his position, with regard to you, prevented us from hastening. "'She has never loved me with love,' said he to us. "'She had pity on me in my agony.' She would not without terror, and perhaps not without despair, have bound herself to pass her life with me. She would now return to me from a sense of duty. How unhappy should I be to deprive her of her liberty, of the emotions of her art, and perhaps of the joys of a new love? It is quite enough to have been the object of her compassion. Do not reduce me to that of her painful devotedness. Let her live. Let her know the pleasure of independence, the intoxications of joy, and even greater happiness if need be. It is not for myself that I love her, and if it be too true that she is necessary to my happiness, I shall know how to give up being happy if my sacrifice is for her advantage. Besides, was I born for happiness? Have I a right to it while everything in the world suffers and groans? Have I no other duties than that of laboring for my own satisfaction? Can I not find in the exercise of those duties the strength to forget myself and no longer desire anything for myself? I wish at least to attempt it. If I fail, you will have pity on me. You will strive to give me courage." That will be better than to flatter me with vain hopes, and to recall to me without ceasing that my heart is sick and devoured with the selfish desire of being happy. Love me, O my friends, bless me, O my mother, and do not speak to me of that which takes from me all strength and virtue, when in spite of myself I feel the sting of my torments. I know that the greatest evil I underwent at Riesenberg was that which I inflicted upon others. I should again become mad. I should perhaps die blaspheming if I saw Consuelo suffer the anguish which I knew not how to spare to the other objects of my affection. His health appeared completely re-established, and other helps than those of my tenderness assisted him to combat his unhappy passion." Marcus and some of the chiefs of our order initiated him with fervor into the mysteries of our enterprise. He found serious and melancholy joys in those vast projects, in those bold hopes, and especially in those philosophical conversations in which, if there was not always an entire similarity of opinions between him and his noble friends, he at least felt his soul unite with theirs in all that related to deep and ardent feeling to the love of good, to the desire of justice and truth. This aspiration towards ideal things, long repressed and driven back in him by the narrow terrors of his family, found at last a free space in which to develop itself. And that development... Seconded by noble sympathies, even excited by frank and friendly contradictions, was the vital atmosphere in which he could breathe and act, although consumed by a secret sorrow. Albert has an exceedingly metaphysical mind. Nothing had ever pleased him in the frivolous life in which selfishness seeks its support. He was born for the contemplation of the most exalted truths, and for the practice of the most austere virtues but at the same time, by a perfection of moral beauty very rare among men. He is endowed with an essentially tender and loving soul. Charity is not sufficient for him. He requires the affections. His love extends to all, and yet he needs to concentrate it more particularly upon some. He is fanatical in his devotedness, but there is nothing savage in his virtue. Love intoxicates him. Friendship governs him, and his life is fruitfully, inexhaustibly divided between the abstract being which he passionately reveres under the name of humanity, and the particular beings whom he cherishes with delight. In fine, his sublime heart is a center of love. All the noble passions there find place and live without rivalry. If we could represent to ourselves the divinity under the aspect of a finite and perishable being, I would dare to say that the soul of my son is the image of the universal soul whom we call God. This is why, a weak human creature, infinite in his aspiration and limited in his means, he could not live with his relatives. If he had not ardently loved them, he might have made in the midst of them a life apart, a strong and calm faith different from theirs, and indulgent towards their inoffensive blindness. But this strength would have required a certain coldness, which was as impossible for him as it had been for myself. He could not live isolated in mind and heart. With anguish, he had invoked their sympathy and called with despair for communion of ideas between himself and those beings so dear to him. This is why, enclosed alone in the brazen wall of their Catholic obstinacy, of their social prejudices, and their hatred for the religion of equality, he broke himself against their bosom with groans. He dried up like a plant deprived of dew calling for the reign of heaven which would have given him a common existence with the objects of his affection. Weary of suffering alone, of loving alone, of believing and praying alone, he thought he had again found life in you, and when you accepted and shared his ideas, he recovered calmness and reason. But you did not share his feelings, and separation from you necessarily reduced him to a more profound and more insupportable isolation. His faith, incessantly denied and combated, became a torture beyond human strength. Dizziness seized upon him, unable to temper the most sublime essence of his life. In souls similar to his own, he must needs allow himself to die. As soon as he had found these hearts made to comprehend and to second him, we were astonished at his gentleness in discussion, at his tolerance, at his confidence and his modesty. We had feared from his past life something too savage, opinions too personal, a bitterness of words respectable in a convinced and enthusiastic mind, but dangerous to his progress and hurtful to an association of the nature of ours. He astonished us by the candor of his character and the charm of his companionship. He, who rendered us better and stronger by his conversation and teaching, persuaded himself that he received all that he gave us. Here he was soon the object of a boundless veneration, and you must not be astonished at so many persons busied themselves in bringing you back to him." When you know that his happiness became the aim of the united efforts, the necessity of all those who approached him, were it but for an instant. End of chapter 35